Welcome to the Psychedelic Skeptic Podcast, where nothing is a cure for everything. My name is Dr. Ann Metz. I'm your host. I'm a professor, researcher, and most importantly, a psychedelic therapist. Join me on a journey of discovery as we explore how psychedelics make the leap from small-scale research studies to mass-market mental health solutions. Hello, and welcome to the Psychedelic Skeptic Podcast, where nothing is a cure for everything. I'm your host, Ann Metz. Today, my guest is Dr. Elizabeth Nielsen. Dr. Nielsen is a co-founder of Fluence and a psychologist with a focus on developing psychedelic medicines as empirically supported treatments for PTSD, substance use problems, and mood disorders. Dr. Nielsen was a site co-principal investigator and therapist for an FDA-approved phase three clinical trial of MDMA-assisted psychotherapy for post-traumatic stress disorder. She's also served as a therapist on FDA-approved clinical trials of psilocybin-assisted treatment of alcohol use disorder, psilocybin-assisted treatment of treatment-resistant depression, and an earlier phase two and three trials of MDMA-assisted psychotherapy. Through Fluence, she provides continuing education and training programs for therapists who wish to engage in integration of psychedelic experiences in clinical settings. Her research includes qualitative and mixed methods projects designed to further understand the phenomenology and the mechanisms of change in psychedelic-assisted therapy, including heavy experiences of trial participants and of therapists themselves. Having completed an NIH postdoctoral fellowship at NYU, she has published and presented on topics of psychedelic therapist training, therapist's personal experience with psychedelics, and including psychedelic integration and group and individual psychotherapy. Elizabeth, thank you so much for being with us here today. Thank you so much for having me on as a guest, Anne. Great. So as we saw in your bio, you've been involved with psychedelics for a while. What would you say initially sparked your interest in the topic? Um, Well, that's a really great place to start. I know, you know, a lot of people are inspired by sort of what they're seeing around them in the field and maybe, you know, some of their personal background or experiences. I, I got involved in the field of psychedelic clinical research really when there was very little going on compared to what is going on today. I started getting involved in 2014, actually. So we're just going on about 10 years. And I was, at the time, I was just finishing a PhD in uh, clinical psychology. And my focus had always really been on addiction psychology and all things that sort of surround how and why people struggle with addiction, with, with, with addiction to drugs and alcohol, but other, other addictions as well, sort of the larger social context, questions like, why people some some people develop a problem and others don't, social determinants, drug policy, anything I could get my hands on and study <laughs> within with regard to that was was really interesting to me. And I was very interested in harm reduction and I was very interested in mindfulness-based approaches and and other sort of, you could say, alternative to what was maybe this more standard practice, abstinence-based approaches at the time. And I had done a, a master's degree along the way to getting my, my PhD. So I had some experience in the treatment field and was really surprisingly unsure of what I was going to find myself doing when I actually finished that, that PhD, because anybody who's been through that process knows it's, you're just so focused on finishing that dissertation that mm. it, it's hard to imagine the day after, right? 
But right about that time, I was, you know, following professional listservs and and just getting to know people in the field. And I came across a posting from the research team at NYU, and they were looking for someone to join the team as a study therapist on a trial of psilocybin for alcohol use. And it just sort of clicked for me that that was something that made a lot of sense to me to try. I had some education in the conduct of research. I had the clinical practice piece already through all of my, my pre-doctoral work. And so I reached out and I, you know, it was a, a long process. It was a lot of persistence, a lot of staying in touch, a lot of following up, a lot of going to meetings and hanging around and just keep asking questions. But eventually it took over a year really before I did the training and then started working on the study. And it was really, really fascinating to be involved, especially at that time frame, because there were not there were not as many studies going on as there are now. You know, MAPS had not started phase three studies. They, they hadn't even really started the, the lead up multi-site phase two study that was going on several years later. And there were, you know, there were very, very few studies even, even in the works. There was very little funding. It was really all coming from small donors and philanthropists at that time. And it was it was considered sort of a controversial thing to do. It was really considered going out on a limb professionally, maybe taking a risk with with one's career, even to be associated with psychedelic clinical research. For me, I knew, you know, it was intuitively absolutely the right thing to be doing. I had, you know, the the I guess the the, the privilege and, and experience and luck to know, you know, coming from a background of so much history of addiction and addiction psychology and drug policy a little bit more context about psychedelics and <laughs> why they might not be available might not have been available in the first place but it it really was a little bit isolated back then and so I was able to sort of watch the field grow from there and one of the things you mentioned in my in my bio was my fellowship and that was actually separate from my work but I was another thing that I pursued around the same time was getting this postdoctoral fellowship it's called a T32 program which funds new researchers who are involved in clinical research, postdoctoral research. And that program really helped me to be able to have some supported time to learn more about psychedelic research, learn more about psychedelic clinical history, to develop some of my own projects, to write some of my own papers. Because like I said, there wasn't, because there wasn't a lot of funding, there weren't even really drug developers involved back then like there are now. There certainly wouldn't have been enough work for me to have, you know, employment in the field full time at that at that juncture of my career. But because of that fellowship, I was really able to dive in a little more fully. By the time that ended, things had shifted, and there was just a lot more work available in the field and more projects to be involved with. Wow, that's great! What a wonderful introduction to your experience in the field. And I imagine that there was a moment really where you had to make a choice between pursuing work as a psychedelic therapist and pursuing your interest in education and training. Can you maybe talk about how you ended up running a psychedelic education and training program? Sure. It, you know, this has to do with the MyFluence co-founder, Ingmar Gorman, who's another psychologist whose work, if you're not aware of, is great to look up on our website or, or check him out sometime. But he and I met through working together on at a harm reduction psychotherapy center in New York City. And we both were running some training programs there, some educational programs there for clinicians uh, that were really st some of the first workshops and talks 
trying to educate clinicians about how to bring harm reduction approaches to talking with their patients who were coming in with questions about psychedelics. And so we both had this background in harm reduction and we were, you know, working from this framework and we were getting referrals, but what we really wanted to do was help clinicians understand how they could apply the principles of harm reduction to their clients' questions when those questions pertain to psychedelics or people needed help maybe after a difficult psychedelic experience. And so he and I developed our first workshops uh, through that through that program. It was part of the Center for Optimal Living with under the leadership of Andrew Tatarski, who's one of the real pioneers of the integrative harm reduction psychotherapy approach. And when we were developing those workshops, you know, there was just so much interest. He and I both had this background of working on clinical research trials of psychedelics, so we were bringing that expertise. But we saw this need and we saw this gap and we saw that there was not really access to education in the field of psychedelic therapy unless one was involved in a research trial. And those were very few and far between. So we started just giving workshops and, and people were coming and then asking about the next one and then asking about the next one. And one day we said, well, we really need to you know, make this a solid program and get a website and <laughs> kind of create something more, more substantial. So in 2019, we officially formed our own entity in order to be able to serve that need for the field. Great. Wow. Well, I wonder if you could tell people listening a little bit about harm reduction as an approach. I know I have clinicians that listen, but I also have people who are just generally interested and might not, they may not be familiar with that term. Sure. So this term comes from, you know, a series, a, a sort of a family of ways of working with people that are geared towards empowering people to make the decisions that are best for them. And knowing that, you know, you as the clinician can facilitate that decision-making process, you can see someone through that process, but that you, you really want to support them in taking, you know, autonomy and responsibility for their own, for their own decisions. And this is an approach that's applied often, you know, in cases where people might be engaging in something that we could see as having some level of harm or being, being risky in some way. You know, the classic example usually is, is addiction and drug use, but there's many, many other applications for this approach now. And it, it's really an, a, a contrast to a more prescriptive, abstinence-only based approach where the clinician comes in and says, I know what's best for you. You need to stop. I'm going to give you these, you know, tools and skills and things to use to get you there and, you know, watch you employ them. <laughs> Theoretically, that's going to work. So it's really sort of a, a, a very different approach from that in that we're respecting people's autonomy, helping them develop their own capacity for decision making, understanding that we don't, you know, necessarily know what's best for someone else and supporting them in in making the decisions that are right for them based on the real risks and harms and potential benefits that are that are relevant to their to their needs. Now this approach can also be sort of taken as part of a psychotherapy approach, which is how it was developed and employed at the Center for Optimal Living and practiced by multiple clinicians, including myself and, and Ingmar earlier in our careers before we got wound up in education. But it, when it's wound into a psychotherapy approach, then you've got the aspect of, you know, the relationship with the psychotherapist and maybe some other treatment goals and other psychotherapy approaches that you can that you can weave in there. And what we've done is we created a model that is the application of 
harm reduction approaches to psychedelic integration work, which includes preparatory work if someone is considering using a psychedelic. And over, over several years of practicing and teaching and working with this model, we wound up publishing a research paper, Psychedelic Harm Reduction and Integration in Clinical Practice. And, and this model is now available for clinicians to draw on in a way where they have a strong theoretical basis for the application of these principles to clinical work. Great. Well, thank you for explaining that. So this is a podcast about the complications that may arise in the transition from an experimental treatment into a mainstream therapeutic. What do you see are some of the potential issues that may emerge in the training of psychedelic therapists? Mm. This is a, another really broad, broad topic, right? Just to kind of give the audience a little bit of context, I think mostly what you're talking about is approaches or models where there is people are seeking FDA approval for a psychedelic as a medical treatment or as a as a therapeutic agent, right? And so that means that the 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 treatment, the drug, would be approved in such a way that it could be prescribed and provided within the context of our medical health care system. Right. And you know, regardless of what one thinks of that system, it is an existing system through which many people access care. There are systems for getting that care paid for. There are systems for delivering that care. There's credentialing systems. There's licensing systems, all of which, you know, works to some degree <laughs> and has its flaws to some degree, but it's there and it's the system, right? So, so there's this push to, to move psychedelics and make them available through that system, certainly not without acknowledging its, its shortcomings. And so as that process unfolds, there are lots of questions that people are asking about training and, and authorization and who's going to be able to provide this kind of therapy and what is this going to look like? You know, my role as a, a training provider is really one of wanting to get clinicians the most and best education that I can at this point, while also uh, helping them acknowledge and work within what is their current scope of practice. So for something like harm reduction-informed integration, that's something that psychotherapists can practice within their scope of practice. Providing harm reduction services is, a, is a, a well-established theoretical orientation and approach to working with someone who's engaging in a specific behavior that may have some, some risk, and you may want to do you know, some harm reduction work, some risk-benefit analysis. Fairly well, fairly well established, especially if you, you know, talk to people, researchers in addiction, it's been around for a while. Because psychedelic therapies, by and large, you know, speaking of things like MDMA, psilocybin, are not at the place right now where there's an FDA approval or an availability of a, of a prescription, there's a couple of ways in which we can train clinicians to provide those, those types of interventions. Um, one is if they're working on a clinical research trial that is researching those kinds of interventions. Now, Getting training on a, on a clinical trial is a great way to get training and education in your field. If anybody's done that as part of their career, especially if you're earlier in your career, you're working with a clinic or a research site and they get the project, you get the training, you get the practice, you get the education for what is essentially an experimental therapy as part of your job. And so one of the things that I do is design projects where I'm training clinicians who are working in the research context but it is a, an approved avenue with which they can be working with psychedelics within that research study, right? 
can't offer it in private practice yet, but they can offer it within the research study. So that's a really big, big role because there are, you know, scores of people getting trained through current research trials who, if and when there is eventually an approval, will already have that background and training and experience to be able to be, to be able to be providers. And then I think the other thing that we're looking towards is because we do that kind of work and we have those sorts of relationships with, with drug developers is what and how much education can we provide in the current research, like about what's going on in the current research to best prepare people to be able to make those offerings if and when they do receive an approval, but without overstepping the boundary of training people in something that they don't have, you know, a, an avenue to provide. And so an example of that is that we're offering, you know, a, a training program in collaboration with MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, which is, if your listeners aren't familiar, the sponsor for the MDMA Assisted Therapy Research Trials. And that is not, you know, it's not FDA approved at this time. However, phase three trials have been completed and there are certain parts of education that we can offer people knowing that, you know, there has been some clinical research on which that can now be based, right? And it can potentially help them if, if and when there's an opportunity for them to offer it in their, in their practice yet, but we're not there yet, right? So we, we always want to be able to give people as much as we can, but also not sort of overstepping the boundary and getting ahead of where we're at with the approval process. That makes sense. Would you care to guess about what things might look like five years from now? <laughs> well, I certainly hope that there are some FDA approvals of some of the things that are in the works right now. And that those things are available through the through the medical and mental health care system. You know, I, I hope that there continues to be a strong, you know, strong professionalism amongst uh, trained providers who are providing not just the not just the assessments and prescriptions for those drugs, but also the actual therapy component that that goes along with them. And there's a number of, you know, there are a number of factors in place that can help make sure that those standards are, you know, are created and, and adhered to as things, as things roll out. But I do hope that there are, you know, the opportunities for people to, to receive psychedelics, you know, as part of their, as part of their healthcare, as part of their mental health care, and, and perhaps for other healthcare indications as well through that system. That said, too, you know, I, I'm sure your listeners are aware there's a number of other, there's another, a number of other avenues available, right? There's, there are decriminalization efforts going on. There are efforts like, like what's happened in Oregon, where there's, you know, a state regulation that allows for supervised adult use under the care of a licensed facilitator. And so I think, you know, something that's kind of unique about us is that we're, we, we want to educate providers in all of those realms and all of those approaches as opposed to strictly saying, you know, there's, there's one approach that we're always just going to be working with through the medical system and, and not, not sort of providing, providing anything for other, other avenues of access. Great. Well, since it's come up, I wonder if maybe you could talk a little bit about what's happening in Oregon. Well, for, for those who haven't, <laughs> who haven't been familiar with this yet, Oregon passed a uh, ballot measure 
which allows for the allows for the state Oregon Health Authority to create a series of regulations and rules that provide for people to have psilocybin in a supervised adult use setting. And it must be under the, you know, under the supervision of a licensed facilitator who's gone through a licensed training program. And it has to be at a licensed service center. So you're hearing the word licensed a lot. There's a lot of licensing. <laughs> it's, it's not, it's not something you can just, you know, walk, walk over to your, walk over to your friend's house and, and do within the, and be under the auspices of this particular legislation. But it is, it is a system that is being sort of created and, and refined as it's getting off the ground. We have a training program that is licensed to provide licensure qualifying training, pro- training to facilitators. Uh, that program has been in operation for October, November, December. We're in December, so 14 months now. And, you know, it's, it's something where, like, as people, are, as people are graduating, service centers are beginning to get licensed. I know that people are beginning to receive psilocybin under, at service centers with licensed facilitators. And, and I think it's really in its, in, in its infancy. It's, it's very new. It's going to take time to grow and to get established and for the standards of care to really become established. But it's an entirely unique thing. And, you know, one of the, one of the nice things about the, the United States is that we have States that can try out things like this and experiment with different frameworks and and actually pretty easily modify and update them. It's having been involved in witnessing a lot of that process. You know, there's there's ample opportunity for feedback and input from the community. And we watched this whole thing be sort of written from scratch over the course of two years, and now it's it's happening. It's actually it's actually happening and functioning, and 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 people are getting licensed, and and like there it is, you know. Yeah, yeah, that's certainly what I've heard. I mean, obviously, I've heard that there have been some challenges in terms of wait lists and lack of service centers where people are starting to, you know, do underground treatment as an alternative to doing it through the service centers. But, you know, one of the things I had concerns with when Prop 109 was being considered really was the low education and training requirements for people to be facilitators. For listeners, the law really only required people to have a high school education and something like 160 hours of training to be eligible to sit for the exam. And you contrast this with three years of training for a master's master's level clinician, five to six years for a psychologist, seven years for a psychiatry specialization. I'm curious how you all as an organization have really worked to ensure that the people who go through your program are adequately trained to do this work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think it's a great question. Well, First, just to, to kind of comment on the amount of training hours, you know, it's really important to for listeners to understand what psilocybin facilitation as defined by the state of Oregon is and is not. It's not the practice of psychotherapy. It's certainly not the practice of psychiatry. It's very much not treatment. It's not, it's not mental health care. And nor can it be offered as mental health care. It is supervised adult use. Hmm. Okay. So <laughs> I ask people to keep that in mind because the way, you know, the way you say it, it makes sense to go like, what is this? This sounds like so little. Mm. But the expectation is not that the facilitator is providing an intervention or mental health care or psychiatric treatment or anything like that. Their role is to be, provide a supportive, 
I would say, harm reduction informed presence and experience for people, to care for people, to help keep them physically and emotionally, psychologically safe as possible during those experiences, understanding that, you know, there are unknowns, there are certainly wild cards that can occur, you know, during and after people's experiences, but to, you know, to the best of their, of, of our ability as a field to provide that, that container for folks. And so I think that, you know, for someone who is, you know, genuinely not seeking, seeking or in need of mental health care treatment and to be paired with a facilitator who has that, you know, that amount of professional training and education. And it, it is a lot still. I mean, it's 160 hours of, of work. There's a state mandated curriculum of topics that need to be covered. There's assessments, you know, et cetera. It's, it's, it's not nothing pretty substantial, that that's, that's feasible. It's, 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 you know, certainly within the realm of realistic that that will be an adequate fit for people. The other thing you have to remember is that for some people, right, when there isn't a, a mental health crisis for which they're actually seeking this as, as treatment, in which case, sh- you know, it, that's really not what this is intended for. The, the thing is that you know, for people who are, you know, who are facilitators, they'll really need to, I think, hold that, hold that line or hold that boundary. If somebody is coming in saying, I want to do this because I have, you know, horrible debilitating depression, and I think it's going to help me, the facilitators really need to be able to hold those boundaries and educate people. It doesn't mean that that person can't access psilocybin services. It means that they need to really set the expectation that, well, this might be beneficial for you. It's not offered as treatment. Mm. Right. Yeah. Thank you for clarifying that distinction. I think that that is, I mean, that's obviously a really important point and yeah. And something that isn't necessarily obvious to anyone who's kind of observing the program. And the thing is like, so I said before, you know, we, we're kind of working a lot of different angles of this field in terms of our education program. So I think that this feels a really important place in in the field because even if there was you know or one of these days is an fda approved psilocybin product that can be offered as treatment for let's say depression that doesn't mean that somebody who just wants to have psilocybin because they you know want to work on their their interpersonal patterns could access it through that system Mm. Right. right. But under measure 109, they can. They don't need a diagnosis. They don't need, they don't need to be, you know, meeting qualifications for treatment. And so there's there's that piece, right? Maybe this is just one end of the spectrum, the other end of which hasn't, you know, really been made uh, become available yet. But I do see those two those two things as potentially complementary. The other thing I'll say is that there's an access issue, right? Mm-hmm. Giving people 160 hours worth of training is a complex and Non, non simple, totally simple endeavor, right? You, you're you're very familiar with our our program, and it's a lot of documentation. It's a lot of curriculum. It's a lot of materials. It's a lot of teaching te- teaching time, teachers' time, assessment, follow up, student support, all of these things. And the more complex and prolonged that program is, 
the more resource intensive it needs to be for both the programs and for the students, right? They need to not only have the funds to cover the program or have, you know, support from another source that's going to cover it for them, but they also need to put in the time to do it. And, you know, the way that these programs are, are licensed, I think we really have to balance what is the burden of the cost, both to the student financially, but also in terms of their time, their investment, et cetera, with what is actually necessary to get people to a level where they can responsibly see someone through an experience like this. And, and I do think that if, if used as intended, that this, the, the training can be, can be adequate for people, you know, provided they, they also are coming in with a, a good baseline set of, you know, just being a responsible person who's going to follow the, follow the regulations and, and stay, stick to what their scope of practice is with that license. Right. Yeah. That, that makes a lot of sense. You know, one of the, you mentioned that I've have familiarity with your programs and have taken your trainings in the past and also taken other trainings through maps. And one of the concepts that was really novel to me or really hard to wrap my head around was this concept of the inner healing intelligence. And it seemed to really be different from anything I learned in graduate school, anything I teach my students, anything I had ever really worked with clinically. I wonder if you maybe could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, it's a great, it's a great phrase. I first heard this phrase from Michael and Annie Mithoffer in my MDMA therapist training when I was starting to work on clinical trials with MAPS in 2017, 2016, rather, and then you know, started work on the trials in 2017. And I think it's a term that is closely related to or comes from transpersonal psychology, and that it really refers to the the individuals. I like I prefer the term intuition, the 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 sort of inner knowledge or inner source of 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 knowledge or wisdom. And I think what's what's important about it is that we kind of touched on this before, right? When I was talking about harm reduction, saying. We're, we're trying to work with people to help the, help develop their sense of autonomy and their sense of trust in their own mind and their own decision making. So often in mental health care, people have just been really conditioned by treatment providers to not want to trust their own minds, not trust their own emotions, not trust their own experience of things. And part of what I see sort of as a broad theme across psychedelic therapy approaches is I really wanting to hand that back to people, really wanting to empower them to look to their own experience or insight and to be able to trust that as a source of as a source of knowledge, right? It's a it's a it's an epistemological problem, really. If you always have to go to your psychiatrist or your therapist to ask, like, is what I'm feeling valid? Is it what I'm feeling okay? What should I do now? I think this is what I want to do, but I don't really trust myself. You're you're really in a pretty disempowered. And harm reduction is very consistent with this, this theme of empowering people in this way as well. So to me, inner healing intelligence refers to that, that source of inner knowledge, you know, our knowledge coming from our own experience and trusting that, that that is something that we can follow that will get us to a better place that we do ultimately want to and will do what's, what's best for us given our circumstances, which are always going to be unique, and that the therapist can have a role in supporting and developing, helping people to develop that, as opposed to imposing their own, you know, 
their own trajectory or judgment of what they think is is best for someone. So that's that's my my best explanation of it. <laughs> and I do think that it's something that we can really work with quite a lot in these in these psychedelic therapy experiences, especially as people can come out of them with an enhanced self uh, sense of self-efficacy. One of the things that I I will often say when I'm training people is you know what you're what you're doing in integration or what you're doing in in sort of especially in the concluding phases of this work is you're helping people develop their own process of of gleaning insight and making meaning out of whatever they experience right and it's not about what you think the right meaning is or what the right interpretation is it's you want to support them in having that experience of having an insight and then being able to trust that and go and you know make changes based on it. So don't worry about the content. Look for the process and support people in that process. That was really helpful. I think that was a great explanation. And it raises, I think, an interesting an interesting dynamic that as we focus on supporting the intuitive knowing of our clients, we're shifting our role as the person of authority in the room to the client. But I also recognize that there are hierarchies and that there are cultural dynamics and that there are, you know, intersectional experiences that we have of power and privilege in the world. And that my stepping away from having the position of authority doesn't really take away the ways in which I will come across as an authority to a client. You know, I recognize that I'm a white cisgendered woman. And my experience of the war on drugs is going to be very different than my clients who have have had different lived experiences. And I'm curious about how you address the cultural dynamics that unfold with psychedelics that are particularly unique to to this world. Yeah. That was a great question. I mean, one of the main ways is is simply not not ignoring the context of what we're talking about here, right? If we're talking about moving psychedelics, which are currently, you know, drugs that are currently Schedule One drugs through a medical approval process, we have to be thinking about how did they get there in the first place? How did we all get into this into this situation? And so our training program includes topics about ethics and equity. It includes topics about access, inclusion, and really tries to help people draw the larger connection to what they're to what the work is that they're doing. Some people are, you know, more sort of more ready and interested in those topics than others. But I can say that that, you know, that aspect of the work that they're doing is always going to be available to them as part of the as part of the program. It's not a, it's not something that we just sort of, you know, washed over and, and glossed over and <laughs> tried to tried to omit. And I think that speaks to, you know, the larger trajectory of why even why even pursue this kind of education or pursue this as a you know as a as a path, which is that it it, it is bringing into calling into question some of the very some of these very harmful structures, right? Some of these particular policies and laws that have been used to oppress people and that have been really unfairly applied. And if people don't kind of know get that context and get that background and are able not able to see how that you know how those patterns are playing out in both in the in the treatment and consultation with individuals but in the you know in in society at a large larger scale 
they're probably going to have a really hard time in the field because they may become very frustrated and sort of have trouble understanding, you know, why is this so challenging? Why is this taking so long? Why don't, why is there only one state where this is available, you know, as a, as a, you know, uh, for adult consumption? And why is decriminalization so complicated? If you don't have that, that if you don't understand that background, you, you're really probably going to frustrate yourself quite a bit because, you know, we can, we can teach someone in, in a matter of a couple dozen hours the basic pharmacology of psilocybin or, and how to care for someone going through those processes. But that's not, that's not a very complete picture. And it, it really doesn't make for someone that's going to be a well-rounded pr- practitioner. And certainly we all bump against it. And you say as an educator, you know, we bump against students who, who don't see their own countertransference maybe and are having a reaction to a client that they don't notice and sort of helping them to have, gain some awareness around that, I think is one of the most challenging things about, about training and education. Yeah. And, and talking to people about their own experiences of how they've been affected or impacted by, you know, by the drug war and, and you know, having people really kind of look at that or the assumptions and biases they make because of the information, misinformation <laughs> that they information and misinformation that they may have been exposed to earlier in life, the assumptions that they carry. Um, so that all gets kind of woven into their into their their education. Part of the one of the courses that's part of the psilocybin facilitators program is is really all focused on trauma-informed care. And there's just a wealth of, of resources in there. I mean, we're talking about, you know, we're talking about systemic oppression, intergenerational trauma, various ways that, that the drug war uh, policies have impacted not just us as practitioners, but also the clients and patients that we see. And it's really wonderful to see people coming out of those programs with just such a, a variety of, of ideas that it's not a it's not a simple either or black and white kind of thing, but it, it really there's a variety of impacts there that they need to be aware of. Mm. Wonderful. Sort of related to your Oregon training program, for those of you who don't know, obviously Colorado has passed a proposition that decriminalize the possession and use of psychedelic mushrooms and certain plant-based psychedelic substances. And they also created a law that individuals 21 and over were, would be able to use these substances and also to create a system for accessing mushrooms for a therapeutic usage. I'm curious if you have any updates or any news about Colorado and how you think Fluence is going to be involved. I am not a great source of information about the latest from Colorado, but I do know what you said basically is seems to be the case that we are anticipating that there will be an opportunity for programs to provide licensure qualifying education for facilitators, for providers there. And in the meantime, I think, you know, education and harm reduction and integration is always going to be relevant for therapists because as your as those decriminalization policies come on the books, more and more patients are, you know, looking at taking psychedelics in other settings on their own and are going to have questions for their therapists. So that's a that's a piece of training that's always available, but I am under the impression that at some point in 2024, the state of Colorado will open applications for training programs to become licensure qualifying programs. I obviously don't have the details yet, but I hope that it's something that's viable for us. We obviously have to look at what's required of us as a program, what the regulations are, 
and what the opportunity there is, but we have a wealth of training materials and we really hope that it'll be a fit for us and that we'll be able to provide some of that education. Marvelous. Well, I hope that you guys do it as well too. I just know that you all have great trainings and it would be a real resource for the state. I just wanted to ask quickly, I mean, I have I mentioned that I did the MAPS MDMA education training last summer. And it was really the only offering of that sort MAPS did last year. And I, it has not gone without beyond my notice that they seem to really have stepped back from the education and training. I'm curious if you know anything about why that is, what's going on, and maybe sort of what your work is through Fluence to sort of fill in that gap. Yeah, that's a great question. So I think, you know, this is one of those time-sensitive pieces <laughs> that we, we kind of chatted about before. At the time that we're, we're recording this is December of 2023. You know, we are aware that MAPS is preparing an application to the FDA that will be, you know, apply for the approval of MDMA as a prescribable drug. And that is a very big application. I'm really glad I'm not working on it because it's a big job. It's a lot of data to pull together. It's a lot of a lot of things that have to go into that. And so, you know, we're all sort of rooting for the people at MAPS to be able to get through that process and, and get that submitted. There will be a waiting period once that's submitted. And I we don't know, you know, <laughs> exactly how long that will take. But the, you know, the idea is that after that submission, there will be a waiting period and, and it will be reviewed and, you know, potentially there will be an approval. At that point, I think that training, education and training potentially, um, which are two different things in our, in our vernacular of, of education programs, training being more the, you know, the skills practice, the clinical applications, education being more like didactics and information transfer stuff. I do think that they're going to be increased and, and broadened opportunities to do that. For those who may not have seen this, we have a collaboration agreement with MAPS, and we are providing in January of 2024 a one iteration of the MDMA Assisted Therapy Education Program, which is what's available prior to that potential FDA approval. So it's about as far as, as one could, could go right now. And I, I will also say that that doesn't necessarily, doesn't certify people to practice MDMA therapy. It does not guarantee any uh, special status or anything, you know, for, for people post if there is an approval, because we won't have like the final requirements available until that until the, the day that if and when that approval actually comes comes through right what what will happen is as you know as that application is being viewed there will be conversation between apps and, and the fda not not me <laughs> again not my not not on my not part of my job but i i do follow this you know as best i can that will determine exactly, you know, what's going to be required of whom and, and how. And so we look forward to continuing to partner with MAPS and continuing to be a provider of anything that we can that will support this effort. And I think, you know, it's important for folks to know both, both my co-founder, Fluence co-founder Ingmar and I have, you know, long relationships with MAPS. We both were 
site co-principal investigators on those phase three trials. And we're just working as closely with them as we can. But the things, if you're not seeing it available and you're not hearing like definite information about it coming from me or coming from another person who's very close to it in the field, it's just because it's not fully determined yet. So there is still some more waiting to be done. I figured that would be your answer, but I thought I would ask anyway. Yeah, well, it's exciting times, and I think we're all maybe not weird. I, in particular, am really looking forward to hearing what this is going to look like. Yeah. Yeah, I recognize that we're running out of getting close to the end here, but I was curious if you were to imagine 30 minutes from now, what might you wish you had said during our conversation that hasn't come up yet? Well, I think, you know, I kind of want to bring it back to the broader implications of what we're what we're discussing here. You know, like I said, this is a long, difficult, complex process. A lot of it is, you know, very seems very new and kind of up in the air and we don't know what comes next because it is it is in a way so incredibly cutting edge, but part of it is because it is really the broader implications of a massive drug policy reform, right? And, and and major changes, both at federal and state government levels. And so when we think about it that way, and we think about the kinds of ideas and the kinds of thinking that we're, that we're working to, to counteract and to change here, it sort of starts to, starts to contextualize things and, and make a little bit more sense. I, my hope is that the, you know, these changes at policy levels and changes in availability, both through decriminalization and medical use and supervised adult use through all of those channels can really help people question their assumptions about about drug use, about addiction, about people who use drugs, and maybe about how we, you know, potentially externalize or other, you know, label people in our communities who are part of our society and, you know, sort of fail to see the 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 problem as a whole, right? And and mm-hmm. us as as all part of one larger thing. And I think that's challenging for for people. It's part of the process that we see in trainees coming through the program sometimes. You'll see people who are very, very interested in psychedelic work. And that's wonderful and we welcome them, but they may still have unquestioned assumptions based on what they grew up learning about people who use drugs and sort of or, you know, say things to the effect of that they you know, are, would feel that they would struggle or be unqualified to work with people who struggle with addiction. So that again, they're seeing that sort of as a, as a dichotomy or as a, you know, a qualitative difference in a a type of person. And so my hope is that this can really be an effort towards changing, changing the way people think (laughs) and on a broader, broader scale and with some broader perspective. And and that's partly why it's challenging, but that's also why it's so interesting. And long overdue. I mean, I think that the attitudes that we hold towards people in our community, yeah, they reveal they reveal sickness in all of us as well, too. So uh, I love that point to end it on. And Elizabeth, thank you so much for speaking with me. Anybody who is interested, I will post the Fluence training website up there and you can learn about it. And I would encourage anyone to, you know, to check out a training. They have lots of free webinars, which I always really enjoy. So thank you again. Great. Thank you so much, Anne. And yeah, all listeners, welcome. Come on, check us out. And we hope to see you soon.
This was The Psychedelic Skeptic with Ann Metz.